Hey, what's up, guys? This is Severin Henderson coming to you again with another episode of Department 3C Presents, a podcast. So today I had the pleasure of speaking with Tom Beers and Michelle Reale. Um, They were two people I worked with back in my East Cleveland days. Um, They both worked for a major hospital in the Cleveland area. And when I first said I was going to do a podcast, Tom reached out to me and said, hey, I have a great presentation on human trafficking. Would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. That's what this show is about. I want to know about it. I want to get to talk about it. I want to do and speak to everybody about everything at any different time. So I really appreciate him reaching out to me and getting on with me to talk about. This is actually a part two. Well, it's not part two. It's a scrap and redo. We had another episode and time just kind of didn't work. So I had to record this episode on my own and send it in. So if the sound quality is a little different, that's the reason why. Um, Most of the time, I want to try and do all my guests and get all my recording done in the studio, but this time that just didn't work, so we had to do it in a different way, which is fine, which is cool. Major thing for me is I want to get content out to um, you guys, and I want to have everybody have the opportunity to get a chance to listen. So, uh, like I always talk about that analysis paralysis, if I sit around and think about what I'm going to do all the time and overanalyze it and then nothing to get done. So I'm out here shooting, throwing stuff against the wall, seeing what sticks. So hopefully you like the episode, appreciate the episode, and you get a chance to contact me and tell me what I can do better. Because criticism, whether it's constructive or not, I'm open to it. I don't have thin skin. Just tell me what I need to do to get better because I, at the end of the day, I'm here to serve, and I want to make sure I'm putting out the best product for my listeners. To get in contact with me, again, Department 3C at all social media platforms, and just my regular email for now, department3c at gmail.com. Those are all ways to get to me. Um, Department 3C is on YouTube. Department 3C is at Facebook. Department 3C is at Instagram, and Department 3C is at Twitter. Um, Going on down the line, Like I said, we'll get into what Department 3C stands for, where it came from, how it grew, why it is what it is. It's it's a little story to it. Some days I say, well, I'm going to reveal the whole story about it. It's going to be like a secret Maroon 5 band name type of thing where nobody knows what that stands for. So one day it'll come out, it'll get there. But just hang out with me, stay with me. We will get to why it is the case. So again, this episode is with Tom Beers and Michelle Reale. We will be talking about human trafficking. The episode just, it we could have went on forever. We could have talked for a long time, but I was very fortunate to get the time I had to get from them. Um, they're very busy people. They both have jobs. Michelle's actually has a doctorate of nursing. That's like super awesome. That's And I know she's been championing and working on that cause even before I left the Cleveland area when I was working with both of them um, around there. So they did an excellent job. I, like I said, appreciate their time, appreciate them coming on. So after this little talk, they will come in with the episode, just 
tell their experiences, tell us what to look for in some of those human trafficking situations. Um, they give their contact information, just the money situation. It's just a, a great conversation. I actually want to have them on again to talk about those issues again because I feel like in our realm of public safety, we don't we don't have those conversations enough. I, the story I missed telling in the conversation that we had when I was a well, still am while fire fighting a fire on the west side of the city, I fell off of back porches and I injured my shoulder. Um, in this building, and I was actually carrying a person out of the building. So in injuring myself, I was laid up, I was um, gone, I wasn't able to work, and I was at home watching TV one day. And it was a show about pimps. And, you know, pimp, pimping is just a culture within itself. So, you know, it's, it's like, a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like not a game, but it's, it's just different. It's, like I said, it's a culture within itself. People have pimping rallies and conventions and they get together like if you ever see the dave Chappelle skit they do what's called the haters ball and they kind of make light of the situation they had iced tea on the episode iced tea's real big into that culture people meet up with their nice cars um they have glasses they have suits they're just very extravagant over the top things like that but in the jest of it there is some truth in it as well so some of these people really live that life they really they're really about that life which is fine which is cool that's to them i'm a person to each their own as long as it's not hurting anyone some some of it does hurt people um but like i said we talk about that in the episode but to speak more to the point of me hurting myself at this fire they're riding around recording these pimps in chicago and they ride past the building that i hurt my shoulder um, fighting the fire in. And I'm like, man, that 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 could have been one of the places for the people to be in there that were being housed for the human trafficking. So just kind of, that's one of those times where reality just jumped up and smacked me in the face, just seeing that in that in that situation. Um, we, we didn't get to, we talk about the wire a lot. That was one of the subjects I wanted to talk about on the episode that I didn't get to, I know Tom, glances goes over it just brushes past it real quick but just how that show that 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 second season was about human trafficking so just all these different situations conversations that i want to have on these topics and go over so i am more than open for anybody to pitch anything to me if you send it i'll read it if you talk to me i'll listen to it i just want to engage with you so please Talk to me. Send me something. Let's talk again. Again, the email address, department3c at gmail.com. And again, department3c on all social media handles. So with all that being said, please take a listen to this episode and tell me what you think. And look forward to hearing your conversations. Good morning. This is Severin. I'm here with Tom Beers and Michelle Reale. They're here to talk about human trafficking. So we had a preview episode we started it before we may add that in a little further down the line but we're going to talk about this issue that they have and they brought to us so for you guys can you give me an introduction to who you guys are ladies first 
Ladies first. Thank you. All right. Hi, my name is uh, Michelle Rielli. I've been a, excuse me, I've been a nurse for 22 years and um, a forensic nurse for the past 15 years. Um, my job is to take care of victims of crime that include elder abuse, child abuse, physical abuse, sexual assault, and um, human trafficking. So that's just a little bit about me. Okay, Tom. Yeah, uh, my name's Tom Beers. I've been uh, friends with for like 16, 17 years now, proudly. Uh, before he left. Uh, I am a firefighter uh, in the uh, Cleveland area. I also work as a hospital EMS manager at a large uh, hospital system located in the Cleveland area. Okay, that sounds, that's that's great. Those are great introductions. Um, so I started off talking about we're, we're here to talk about human trafficking. Um, Tom did me the favor of reaching out to me and say, hey, I have a topic for you. I see you got a podcast. We would love to come on and talk about the subject. And I said, thank you so much. I would love to have you on. So please give us the introduction of you guys, because I know you have like a pitch together. So just walk us mm -hmm. through it. So Tom, why don't you... Um Start. We can kind of go like the same route we yeah. do when we do our presentation. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. I don't have it pulled up, but I think maybe just by starting on why um, you and I got together on this project, and then we can maybe just define the differences between sex trafficking and labor trafficking, because you and I know this, but I'm not so sure everyone else would know what all that means. So Yeah, so originally I would say maybe about Three years ago, Michelle came to me after uh, the Republican National Convention was here in the Cleveland area. <clears throat> and she's like, hey, listen, I, I got these patients who are coming in by EMS and by fire, uh, you know, in the EMS transports. And they're coming in and they end up were, were being part of human trafficking rings or brought in um, for the RNC. And I am blown away by this. I'm like, this, and then, of course, this happened at the DNC and Michelle's telling me about all of this. And I'm thinking how did we miss this? And she says, well, you know, there's these, these signs that you guys can look for in the physical environment. And they're just, the EMS is not capturing it. They're not seeing it. Even, and we're going to talk a little bit about how this is a, a crime in plain sight. And it's kind of like, if you don't know what you're looking for, you, you don't know what you're looking at. And so at first I really did not believe that this had, EMS had any role uh, in this fight. Uh, and I, I really didn't understand it, uh, what all entailed. And as Michelle just sat there and started describing these scenes of, of, of these victims, and I thought, well, I've seen that in my career. I mean, I got, I've been in fire and EMS for 20 years. And I've, I've seen that. Oh, I've seen that. Oh, my gosh, I've had a call like that. I thought, really, man, maybe we really do have a role in this. And one of my roles at the fire department, is I work as an intelligence liaison officer. So I, I work between the city's public safety uh, division and our federal, state, uh, homeland security partners. So as information, this is all after 9-11, so as information goes, uh, you know, from the top up, uh, down to the local municipal level, uh, things that we see at the local municipal level go on the way up. And I thought, well, maybe this stuff, we, you know, if we're involved in the intelligence gathering for, uh, you know, it's, uh, terrorism and infrastructure, uh, you know, terrorism, um, uh, hate crimes, and we're seeing this type of stuff, maybe we really do, you know, the whole idea of see something, say something, Maybe we can apply that to human trafficking. 
And so we really started digging at like, what is EMS's role in human trafficking? So we go to the Google machines and uh, put in like EMS human trafficking and you get these standard sites, uh, Department of Homeland Security's Project Blue campaign, um, which is their uh, uh, federal um, training for local law enforcement, local fire and EMS on what to look for. But it was so generic and it was written by people at the federal level who aren't on the ground level like like myself and, and, and Michelle in the emergency department, but really for, for the pre-hospital care, it really wasn't, you know, it didn't apply. It just wasn't realistic. It's kind of like watching uh, uh, Chicago Fire or Chicago PD. It ain't real. It's not the wire, by the way, which is real. We'll talk about that again, too. Um, but so I, I, we started applying. So just looking back at the career and then so basically what we did was like no one has a training on this, you know, made for fire and EMS for, you know, for fire and EMS, by fire and EMS and like, let's make it. So Michelle bringing her expertise, uh, you know, Michelle's got a, a doctorate in nursing. This is one of her uh, parts of her thesis was looking at uh, human trafficking and she's working on that project at the time. She's well-respected. I mean, they're every cop fireman and, and medic in the greater Cleveland area knows her. She's just been a prolific speaker prolific um, advocate for pre-hospital and firefighters and EMS personnel. So bringing her expertise uh, and, uh, you know, the, the name of, of, uh, of what we're, you know, myself at working at the hospital as an educator and, and uh, bringing hospital resources out to the field, we just created this program, like we, from scratch, um, and really, again, painted this picture of what, basically what I was going through personally of not seeing been to be able to identify human trafficking and put that on paper so that what I when I went down this rabbit hole with Michelle, uh, other people would start to travel down that rabbit hole through us telling the story. And that's really where it started. So the whole idea was, you know, things I learned is that there's two different types of human trafficking. And and this comes down to, we go to that uh, uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security's website and Michelle and I did like a little experiment. You know, we went on the website and you look at, you know, what does human trafficking look like? Um, you know, there's the, there's notions of that, you know, white females tied up in basements and they, you know, they got bondage on their hands and, you know, we as firemen and, and EMS, we're going to come in and swoop in and rescue them for the, and that's not what it looks like. And that's why I found out going through my own career. And that's what we found in, um, you know, on, uh, the, on these websites. So we really want to change the perspective for firefighters and EMS. That's not just sex trafficking, you know, it's not just white females tied up in base and being traded off by foreign people, you know, around the globe. That the other side of it that nobody really talks about is labor trafficking, which probably accounts for, you know, a good proportion globally of the human trafficking trade. Um, you know, especially us as an Americans where we're buying, you know, I got my iPhone over here, you know, I have my, you know, my Nike sneakers. Like, where does that come from? Who, who says that people are getting equal pay for making the products that we as consumers in first world nations are, are buying? Um, you know, there's a lot of labor trafficking going into those products that we buy here. And then the sex trafficking really paint a picture of, of what those two things are. So, um, I mean, it is a huge problem. This is modern day slavery. Um, you know, there are owners, people that own people that work for them for free and whether they're working for them in a store, in a factory, in a, you know, the term uh, a sweatshop, or they're working for them for free, turning out a product of sexual acts in order for the other person to profit. I mean, it, it, it's, um, it's another form of slavery that's, you know, since man has been on this earth enslaving other people. And this is a, a modern form of it going on here, right here in this country, right here on this planet, 
across all economic classes, across all races, um, and it's uh, all genders, and it's it's really a huge problem. So, um, so there's the sex trafficking and labor trafficking, and it's forcing someone um, by the use of force, fraud, coercion, trickery, intimidation to perform some type of work or sexual act or labor act with, um, you know, against their will. And it's estimated that there are about 40 million people globally that are affected by this. It's um, a $150 billion industry. And, you know, we always ask, right. So we ask the students, what's the first, you know, what do you think the most, you know, number one would be? And it's, you know, drugs. Um, and then, you know, human trafficking and it's surpa surpassed illegal firearms sale. And part of the reason why is because it's considered a high reward, low risk crime. Um, and what I mean by that is that traffickers can make a lot of money um, on this. So if you were to sell drugs, you sell them one time and the consumer would use the drugs and maybe they come back to you, maybe they don't. But you can sell a human being over and over again. And um, the average trafficker can make anywhere between $25,000 to $100,000 per person that they sell for either sex or labor trafficking. And it's so a high reward with low risk. In our state of Ohio, if, if someone is, um, they, a trafficker is sometimes charged with um, promoting prostitution, which is six to 18 months jail time. And then the trafficked person is charged with prostitution. So we're missing the boat here on, on what the crime is. And so low risk. So if you're a criminal, six to 18 months jail time isn't very much time. Um, there is a supply and demand for this. So there's an economic principle in this. And because the demand is so high, there is people that are going to want to supply people for these kinds of trades, you know, sex or labor trafficking. And so... Um, as long as there are a demand. And I think that's a real big topic that you could spend hours on is what's what's going on in our society that we think that we are above other people, right? So it's a human rights, social justice issue, and that we think that we are are able to trade and sell people still in, in this day and age. And then just basic system inequalities and disparities. If you look at our social system and its structure, if you are born into um, a location, you know, geographic location or into a class system or into um, a community where you have resources, education, um, public safety, water, housing, all that stuff, um, you are less likely to um, enter into this lifestyle. However, it doesn't discriminate. Um, human trafficking affects the every age, every sex, every race, every gender, everything. There's no discrimination with exploitation of people, but you are uh, more vulnerable. So our marginalized populations and our um, some of our um, ethnic groups are at greater risk for human trafficking. But because of it, you know, you have resources, the chances are that you're going to get sucked into this lifestyle is a little bit less. Okay. Um, I have a couple questions. So mm -hmm. I heard you bring up the money aspect. You said that a person could make a hundred thousand. Is that like the numbers that you're usually seeing? Cause usually that's the main motivating factor 
behind what people tend to do, especially, well, not especially, but when it comes to legal or illegal actions. Right. So I think my, my um, experience as a nurse is from what my patients have told me and also what the literature supports. And so it all really depends. I've had a patient that was sold multiple times um, when she was kidnapped and her the she was under the impression that the buyers paid twenty five to thirty dollars for her services. Um, there are other people that have been exploited and they they pay more. So according to the literature and the research, it really depends on what you're doing um, and and what what your trafficker values you at. So the estimate is between $25,000 to $100,000 a year. And if you have more than one person you're exploiting, it can be a very lucrative job for the, or, you know, business for the trafficker. Okay. Um, and my other question is you, you, you said still, and that brought to my mind, you know, long time ago, we can think about biblical times, maybe when, you would think kind of the same stuff was going on. What what do you think tech role? What role does technology, newer technology that we have now, play into this? Like I know they shut down different pages, um, different internet sites. Do you think technology is um, is this helping or hurting this case? And what what do you think it could do to help or hurt? Oh, I think technology has exacerbated the problem tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, before you mentioned it, they, um, Backpage.com was one of the largest companies that was protected um, by some laws about trafficking, selling sex and under my underage people um, on the internet. Um, Tom and I have had some stories that we talk about young people lured away through social media thinking they're talking to 14-year-olds um, you know, playing a video game or something like that. In reality, it's someone in their 20s, 30s, 40s, or whatever it is. So um, we also have the ability to use social media to educate people and get the message out so that it can help us. But I would think that you know, social media has, and the dark web and the illegal activity has made it um, hard to catch people and also easier to sell people. I think it's like uh, really like any arms race. Uh, you, know, you think back to being children of the 80s, right? You watch the different countries uh, up there, their technologies and, you know, Star Wars programs and space races. There's always, even in this, the technology, there's always a race. So like Michelle said, there was using the internet. I mean, the internet is, a, is an information sharing and gathering tool. People, So you're sharing both legal and illegal information across the internet. But at the same time, I also think that there are tools that are being developed, uh, you know, through technology to help us um, uh, fight uh, human trafficking. And, and Michelle, what's the name of that one app? I mean, there's an app out there where if you go to a hotel, you take a picture of the inside of your room because a lot of the, the victims that of uh, human trafficking, they'll be in hotel rooms and they'll be posted on these dark webs and they'll be, you know, the, the inter- uh, when the, the police uh, rescue somebody, find these, you know, thumb drives or of child pornography and they'll notice these people are in hotel rooms, they can never match up the hotel rooms, you know, because there are these anonymous places. So there's apps out there where people like you and I can actually, every time you go to a hotel, 
you can take a picture of your room and then they'll use like imaging um, uh, technology, you know, uh, matching technology to, to be able to say, okay, this, uh, you know, Tom Beers took a picture of while he was in this hotel room and my gosh, this hotel room was is the same hotel room that we see in the picture with this case from like three years ago. So they can help yeah. track that. But, I, you know, going back to the, the idea that, you know, there's, you know, we were talking about the vulnerability, uh, the vulnerable people, you know, the youth people that don't have um, uh, support systems at home. And one of the things that we kind of, I don't even think we've touched base on, and it took me some time to really uh, think about this was uh, gay, lesbian, uh, LGBTQ uh, communities, you know, that vulnerability where you might have a support system at home, but you don't want other people to know about your your secret. And there's a, there's a story that we share in, in the class I'll, I'll share here about how technologies uh, uh, hurt this, this or exacerbate this problem. Uh, there was a boy, I think he was 13 or 14 years old, and he plays 14. You know, I have kids. I have four boys, uh, you know, between the ages of 15 and 10. They, they play Fortnite and any of these video games. Um, and the, the kid was in the chat room feature, and he was talking about, you know, because he's being anonymous, nobody knows who his real name is. He's basically, he needs to tell someone his secret. So he shares his secret. He now makes himself vulnerable. And just like any predator, they find that vulnerability and they exploit it. Um, so this boy was on there saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm 14. Uh, I think I'm gay. Uh, I can't tell my family because we live in Kansas. They're a very Christian-based family. They'll never understand. And what does this predator do? He snatches on and goes, hi. Well, guess what? I'm 18 years old. I, I remember being your age four years ago. I also live in Kansas. I also had the same problem. I think I could help you. Why don't we meet? So now there's this connection that vulnerability uh, was exploited. The boy meets this uh, 18-year-old, ends up not being an 18-year-old, um, and the boy went down to a, uh, uh, like a, a local strip mall, a coffee shop, to meet this person, and the boy, the boy disappeared. And they found him several months later in another operation, I believe it was in the state of Georgia, where the Georgia State Police were uh, investigating a possible child uh, pornography and uh, prostitution ring. And they found this boy in Kansas locked away um, in the woods in, with uh, several other children in a, in a trailer. Um, so there's that technology in it. For me, that really hits home. Anyone that's listening that has kids, you know, I, I'll look at it this way. And, and someone explained to me, and I thought this is perfect. If you, especially when it comes to YouTube video games, you know, allowing your kids to have there. I mean, I'll, I'll go to Target and I'll watch like little kids, you know, five, six years old sitting in the cart, you know, watching YouTube with the headphones on. And someone explained to me like, you know, if you, if there was no internet and you took your child and you lived across the street from a park and every day you let your kid go to the park and sit on a bench and every day you noticed a different stranger would come and sit next to your child and would talk to your child for an hour maybe two hours a day, just sit there and talk on the bench and you don't know what they're saying. Do you think that's right? Do you, would you allow that? Of course, any parent would say, no, I would never let my kid go to the park, sit down on a bench and let a stranger just chew their ear off for two hours. You don't know what they're saying, but that's what parents are doing. They're letting their kids go on the, I mean, that's exactly what the internet is. They go on YouTube, they go on these games, they go in these chat rooms. They don't know who they're talking to. You don't know who they're talking to. And these people are finding these, uh, these, these cracks in their persona, maybe in their family structure, in their life, that they exploit or put ideas in their head of what is acceptable or not acceptable. So the Internet is, is, is I agree with Michelle, is a real huge uh, uh, issue with, uh, again, transmitting and sharing illegal um, uh, activities of trading people. I mean, we trade credit cards over the Internet. We trade drugs. We trade, so we also trade people. But at the same time, 
Um, you know, we really have to realize that children on the internet is, is a huge, huge issue uh, with uh, human trafficking. I, I, um, for me, my kids, they play video games. I'm, I'm a big video game person. And I let my son play on my PlayStation. And I he plays on my profile. So some people think they might be playing me. They're really playing him. <laughs> but the thing about it is, I won't get him a headset. Um, every conversation he has is going to be heard by me right now at the age Mark. he's at. So I, you know, I hear his friends talking to him and yelling at him, tell him he, they, he trash and he tell him they trash and all that. That's all they do is just talk back and forth to each other. But I want to hear those conversations. I want to hear what's going on. The same thing with the tablets. I let my son and daughter play with the tablets and you know, for a parent, sometimes you feel like it's kind of annoying to have to hear what they're doing. You're trying to do your own thing, maybe read, maybe concentrate on something. But just hearing like that background, what they're listening to seems to help me out. I'm not saying he hasn't seen anything. He probably isn't supposed to. But that's what that's how, what I do to try and keep track. Traffickers oh. are very um they're business people, they're smart, and if you were to describe what does a trafficker look like, what would you say? What, I mean, do you have any idea of what a person who traffics looks like? Well, a trafficker, the one doing the trafficking, no, I have. The wire, the wire, <laughs> the wire season two. No, right, here we go. Right. <laughs> That's what we're talking about, the wire season two. Um, they had the girls right. ahead of its time. Locked in a um, right. shipping so, container. Right. And, and I tell you, that, that was probably the biggest um, shock to me over the years working with survivors of human trafficking, because often the person that is trafficking them is um, someone that they knew and trusted and loved. Mm -hmm. um, it could be a family member, um, a parent. I've seen parents trafficking their own children in exchange for drugs, um, usually is what I see. They're addicts. Um, it's um, some type of relative or someone that befriended them and, and earned their trust. So it's a grooming process and it's very calculated. Sometimes they send the women out to befriend these young people, young girls and boys, and, you know, it takes a couple months for them to gain their trust and um, provide them with basic needs that they might not be getting at home, such as, you know, um, love and affection, attention, there might be abuse going on at home, so there appears not to be an abuse in this relationship. They get food and water and housing and clothing and gifts, um, and that goes on for a while until there's a bond um, created, and then slowly they're integrated into this world. So it's very calculated, and I don't know if you've heard the you know terms of trauma bond or um, you know Stockholm syndrome, but often patients patients, victims, um, don't ask for help for many reasons out of fear. Uh, no one will believe them. Um, that bond, um, addiction. So there's a lot of things that prevent people from asking for help, but the person that's trafficking them can often be someone that they're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And, and and as I was add, you know, a lot. Of, sometimes they just don't see anything wrong with it. And you know, from 
there was a, a family in, again, we're talking about using the world's vulnerable populations. There's a family that had uh, citizenship in Syria and they also had uh, citizenship in, uh, in, in outside of London, you know, some of the most expensive real estate in the world. They, so they're uh, British and Syrian uh, 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 citizenships. But what they were doing during the Civil War was they were going to, in Syria, they were going to the Syrian refugee camps, uh, intentionally putting themselves in there and then finding people that were, again, you know, these are wolves. So they're looking for the lone sheep, someone that didn't have a support structure. And they would say, hey, listen, when I'm, I also have British citizenship. I'm going to lie and say that you're my cousin and I'll take responsibility for you. We're going to get you out of here. And they would bring them back to London. These folks would be uh, basically indentured servants and, and slaves. They would put them up in these large apartment buildings. Uh, so think of like all the apartment buildings, maybe in Chicago or the Cleveland area. Um, you know, we're not talking about the expensive ones downtown. We're talking about, you know, uh, just on the fringe where, you know, multiple. This family owned all of these apartment buildings where, you know, maybe uh, 20 units uh, per building, multiple buildings stacked up in the same area. And they would use these folks they brought back as basically slaves. And they would, they would every time an apartment got turned over, which was frequently, they would, these folks would be in charge of uh, painting, uh, cleaning, uh, doing the carpets. And then when no one was living in these apartments, they would be basically living in the closet. They would have very little means. And so... You know, now that we're, and again, I, I read this story and I thought, man, as a fireman, I've seen this. Well, I did, uh, uh, we did a uh, inspection on a, uh, a large apartment building, a multi-family dwelling. And in the basement, in the part, there's an underground parking garage. Uh, there was a small room and you can see that someone was living in there. So that kind of affects how, as a firefighter and a fire inspector, that you're going out and you're looking at these things like no one should be living in a, in a parking garage. No one should be living in a closet. No one should be living in an abandoned home or abandoned apartment. And sometimes it's because these that, that's the shelter they've been given because it, it doesn't cost the, the owners, the slave owners, the, the traffickers, it doesn't cost them anything. So they can just put them up in these in these abandoned places. Okay, so Michelle, I heard you, you said patients and they said, oh, let me change it to victims. I heard that. So we obviously go out on calls as firefighters, um, even police officers, they don't call them patients, but you know, the public that they serve. What should we be looking for? What are some of the signs that um, we can see? It's a great question. Can I take right. that one? It's a great question. What? Can I take that question from a firefighter's perspective? Well, yes, but let me, let, let me tell you, um, all right, you go first, and then I'll talk about the clinical part yeah. of it. So okay. when we're out in the field, we're, you know, similar to, like, domestic violence cases, you know, where we find someone maybe talking for the other person. They can't speak for themselves. Um, but uh, in the physical environment, this goes back to how we opened up. You know, Michelle explained these things to me. Uh, looking for, uh, and this, I've seen it, bars on the, you know, in some neighborhoods you have the bars on the outside, the security bars. Instead of having them on the outside, how about security bars on the inside? Okay. Um, if you're not looking for it, it's such an easy thing to miss, right? Obviously, you go to a house that's on fire, you're going to notice it right away when you're trying to gain entry. But when you're on a standard EMS call or a standard maybe CO call and you see this, or how about you walk down the hall, maybe it's a, a, a larger duplex house, uh, very similar to the houses in, uh, in Cleveland area and in, in Chicago, I'm sure. Um, and you see that all the individual rooms have padlocks on the outside. Why do all the bedrooms have padlocks uh, on them? 
um, maybe, uh, you know, signs of, again, especially in from a fire prevention perspective, again, going back uh, to a similar story I just shared, we went to a small mom and pop operation um, where they, we came in for the inspection, we smelled like incense burning. It was a type of store where incense should have been burning. And as we were walking around, we didn't, we just the rate, the person was working there. We walked by a janitor's closet and in the janitor's closet was a mattress, some little foodstuffs, uh, some uh, old paperbacks. And what it appeared, and that's where the incense had just been snuffed out before we walked in. You know, we had our badges and everything on. So the authorities are coming in and this person must've snuck out the back door, but they were living there. So this person was living there because they were, uh, you know, again, potentially uh, doing some type of labor trafficking, labor work for free. And they were living in this uh, in this commercial property. And of course, that makes sense because if you're the the owner and you have a regular family and a business and a house, a house you're not going to put this person up in your house. You whatever, it's a, you're going to do the cheapest thing possible to keep this person sheltered and fed and watered. And so you're going to put them up in that commercial property. And so that from a firefighter's perspective and a fire prevention perspective, that makes a huge difference because you roll up at three o'clock in the morning on a commercial taxpayer property, you're not going to be thinking someone's living inside that place. You know, it's empty parking lot, it's three o'clock, like your tactics are completely different. You're more likely to go to a defensive or a transition attack rather than, you know, going in and doing a primary search for victims in a commercial property at three o'clock in the morning. But if you find out that, I mean, if you can prevent that tragedy from happening, like in the aftermath, you're doing an overhaul and you find that someone was actually inside that building and you're trying to figure out like, why were they there? Was it from a fire perspective, uh, fire prevention perspective, your junior company inspections look for these signs. And I'll mind you, I had seen this after I went through this training, developed, uh, Michelle and I developed this training and I, and I, again, went down the rabbit hole with her. But if I go back through my career, I'm sure I could have found other incidents like this. I just didn't see it. Like I just kind of glossed, oh, there's a mattress on the floor in the closet of this commercial property. And you ask like, why do people do that? Well, especially mom and pop businesses and smaller uh, local businesses, if, if they have to compete in an e-commerce society, they have to uh, compete against Amazon and Walmart and Target and these big stores and the internet uh, e-commerce. So that margin of profit for them is so small that if they can get some free labor to come work for them, so they don't have to pay someone to, to sit in their store for, you know, and actually pay that person, um, you know, they're going to turn up, they're gonna, their profit margin is a little bit larger for them. So um, that, that's that's something to really consider. Hey, Michelle, the clinical aspect, please. So, um, yeah, I, I think that um, the medical concerns, um, that if you see a patient um, that you're, what we see is they come in for everything, right? But high reoccurrence exposures or testing or treatment for sexually transmitted infections. Okay. Um, saying they have medical or multiple sex partners, if they were to talk about that. Um, drug and alcohol abuse. We think that people are addicted to alcohol or drugs because of, you know, whatever reason, but not thinking that perhaps they're being controlled by drugs, particularly by their trafficker. So um, people that come in with physical assault or trauma, the injury doesn't match the story. Um, behaviors that you might see either in the ER or a, a medical office or even in the field, or I think Tom mentioned someone speaking for them, someone who doesn't have documentation or ID someone who might not know where they are or what day it is. 
um, someone who is hypervigilant and anxious, uh, have a, de a depressed mood or a flat affect, avoid eye contact. So those are just some subtle signs. Again, none of this is one and done kind of deal. It just maybe will help you understand that there's more questions to ask. And the one case that made me go to Tom and talk to him about it was an asthmatic. And, you know, EMS brought her in and they just said, hey, we got this asthmatic. It was really weird in the house. So these three girls were all living in the same room and there was only one bed. And as soon as they said that, I was like, really? Tell me more. You know, and they kind of described the rooms in the house and the girls were young and they said they were sisters and they obviously weren't sisters. And, um, you know, the one girl had is an asthmatic. And if you think about it, you're, that's your lifeline, your lungs to breathe. And, and if you're had asthma since you were a kid, you know, the routine, you know, you have to have your inhalers, you know what it's like not to get enough oxygen and, and to feel like you're suffocating. And here's a 19 year old that hasn't you know, she only goes to the ER for rescue inhalers. Why isn't she getting the medical care she needs? Uh, so people that are going to the hospital when it's for crisis and rather don't have the ability to follow up on maintenance things. So if it was a diabetic who doesn't have insulin or, you know, a heart failure patient that doesn't have their Lasix or whatever it is, someone that's always going to the hospital for primary care can be one thing, or it could be a sign that they don't have access to health care for whatever reason, right? So um, tattoos sometimes can be um, a, a red flag as well. There used to be uh, where there was a barcode that people came in with, and that barcode was like, I own you, this is your property, we're going to scan you kind of thing. And then once the traffickers are aware that people know what that means, they switch to a different type of tattoo. So for me, you know, patients, 80 there was a survey that was done of survivors of human trafficking, and they asked them, did you seek medical care while you were being trafficked? And 88% said yes. 88% said they had been in a healthcare facility while actively being trafficked and were not identified or offered resources um, or screened for that. So 63% are through the emergency department. So your EMS is definitely seeing these patients. Yeah. And so these subtle signs, several of them together should be red flags that something's going on and um, you're giving a handoff to that nurse what you think like this guy was talking to her he wouldn't leave her alone we told him he couldn't come with us but he's following her here or she said she doesn't speak English but you know she does or whatever that is giving a good handoff to nursing um, or the receiving person is really important and hopefully they've had some training or concern even you can say i'm concerned that this patient might be a victim of trafficking and then they would be like oh okay we'll look into it and hopefully they have a forensic nursing program i don't know where in chicago you guys take your patients but if you suspect human trafficking you should definitely be taking them to a facility that has access to a forensic nurse who can come in and and do some um screening and develop a rapport with that patient to see if they would disclose. And, and you know, it, it may be uh, for people listening from across the country, 
you know, depending on your state, you probably already have a legal responsibility or, or uh, legal obligation to report anything that you suspect, just like we do with child abuse and, and elder abuse. But I don't. I think everyone that's listening and in this conversation right now would agree that we definitely have a moral obligation to report any uh, of our findings uh, that that we that we have. And Michelle, by the way, I gotta go back. You gotta finish up the story on on the inhaler because that's like one of the best stories too. So the, this girl, which one? The girl, the inhaler. Like follow up oh. with that. Yeah. Oh. So I mean, just to illustrate that not everybody gets this concept. Right. So so basically, you know, they. EMS brings in this girl and she's asthma exacerbation. Uh, we gave her three dual nuts and uh, her, her and her sisters all live in the same room and it was weird. And I don't know, it was hundred degrees and there was no air conditioning and they were all in their pajamas and just a bunch of red flags. And so I have access to her medical chart and I can see that she's had early encounters with the juvenile court um, at, you know, 13, 14 years of age. She's been, um, she told me that I asked her about why she doesn't have inhalers. She doesn't have health insurance. Does she have a job? She's currently not working um, because she had complications from an unplanned pregnancy. So she had terminated a pregnancy and she was having complications with that. Um, she, uh, so no medical insurance, no job, uh, no uh, a recent abortion, early encounters with the juvenile court. And I said to her, you know, I, I, how do you pay your bills? And she says, my boyfriend pays for things, which is, you know, again, another red flag that a 19-year-old has a boyfriend who pays for everything, right? And so I was asking a question. She goes, I know what you think, and it's not that. And I said, well, are you, do you have to do anything, you know, to repay him for paying your rent or paying your phone? And and she's like, it's not what you think. And she got teary-eyed, and she turned her head from me, and I said, I can help you. And she said, what are you going to do? Put me in a shelter. So, you know, I didn't have to say, are you being trafficked? I said, are you safe? Are you, do you have to do anything that you don't want to do in order to repay this debt? And she knew exactly what I was talking about. And she wasn't ready to disclose. Um, it's that cycle of domestic violence. If you think about it, it's the same thing. She's getting her needs met. Someone's paying for her to live. Someone's, you know, she had her nails done. She had her hair done. So maybe this isn't the worst thing that's happening to her right now because she's surviving and she's doing this. And so there's this whole, another whole podcast we could do Seb, really on um, what is human trafficking, what is prostitution and what is the sex industry, sex workers. Right. And sometimes people think that every prostitute out there is doing this because they want to and there's survival sex, right? So this can get very gray. There's not black and white with this. So in the end, you know, I just said to this young lady, just keep coming back. We'll take care of you. I want to help you. And, you know, we ended up discharging her and there was no disclosure, but I charted what I saw. I charted what I felt and thought, and I, you know, hopefully someone will keep screening her when she comes back. What the doctor, hold on, what did the doctor say, Michelle? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I keep forgetting this. Stuff. So when the doctor came out, she's like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And I said, yeah, I think she's being trafficked. And she's like, what? I was thinking she had bronchitis. What the heck are you talking about trafficking? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it, it just shows you that people don't always think the way my brain has been trained to think now because I'm completely invested and committed to this cause. 
So I mm-hmm. think about it. And when EMS gives me strange information, I try and pr- think of how would I screen or help this patient differently. And not all nurses have had my training. And that's why we do these kinds of trainings and education and try and reach as many people as possible and get people to understand what the red signs are, red flags are, and how to screen people. And, and EMS is, uh, brings a lot of these folks in, you know, talk about like uh, the traffickers look at these victims as property. And so I'm going to relay it in, in another way. You know, if your car breaks down and you can't drive anymore, it's got a problem. How do you get it to the place where it's going to get fixed? You call a tow truck, right? You call a tow truck. The tow truck takes it to the place it gets fixed. So for traffickers, if, especially if they're managing multiple people, like Michelle alluded, like if you either make $25,000 to $100,000 per person, whether it be in labor trafficking or in, uh, in sex trafficking, like you're not going to take the time away from your business. You have other product you have to worry about. You're going to call the free tow truck that comes and picks up your broken car, quote unquote, which is EMS. They come up and they, it's quote unquote free and they pick up this, uh, your property and they take it to the doctor at the emergency department, which is pretty much in and out. You can pay cash. You don't even really give your own name because the laws are written that they can't turn you away. Um, and your quote unquote product gets fixed by the quote unquote mechanic. And it was a free tow truck. And so they call EMS. And by the way, why do they call EMS? Because they don't think that EMS and firefighters have the same level of training and sophistication and better to be able to recognize these things as police officers. But as we tell everyone all the time, EMS and firefighting is the largest intelligence gathering apparatus in the United States. We have warrantless entry. We go into people's homes all the time. And we use this to our advantage all the time, right? We get like drug victims and, and gang shootings in the back of our ambulance. And like, you know, we, we try to get some information from them. They don't want to give it to us. And what do we say as fire, paramedics? The line. I'm not the police. Right. I'm not the police. You can tell, and, you can tell right, me whatever. Because everybody loves a fireman, right? My cat's right. stuck in the tree. They don't call cops. They call the fireman. Everybody loves a fireman. Sorry to the cops out there. You know this is true. Um, so we use that to our advantage. People disclose things to us. So, you know, we're... And so, again, especially with that idea of domestic violence and getting people to be able to disclose and someone's speaking for them, we have this great tool in the, that we have that we bring with us. It's called the box, right? The squad box. Yep. That's a moment of isolation. And I, I say this in our class all the time. Even if people don't disclose to us, if we can, like, line up the pitch just perfect for these folks and get the idea, like, once we get them isolated, say, listen, I don't know what's going on. I think something's going on. I'm a fireman. If you want to tell me, don't tell me. But when we get to the hospital, you know, there might be someone there, like I'm taking either, you can talk to someone that there's people trained at the hospital who can help you out of this situation. You may not want to disclose to me, and guess what? They're probably not going to because, you know, you're just some stranger, uh, you know, they're only having for five or 10 minutes. But what you're going to, I would like relay this to uh, the concept of, of uh, I was a former uh, field artillery officer, uh, you know, so softening the target, right? So we're softening the target a little bit and giving that idea to the person, like you may not disclose to me, but now the, the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio view, right? I put the inception in your head, your idea. Okay. That now in the next 10 minutes, while we're going to the hospital, you're thinking about how do I disclose, right? So you soften that target with that idea. And so by the time they get to see someone like Michelle in the, or one of our team members or, a, or any uh, forensics nurse or SANE nurse uh, that's out there uh, at your hospital you transport to, they've had time to think about, is this the moment that I'm going to disclose? They've now thought about and come up with a plan on how they're going to do it. Um, and so again, that just that preparation, given that idea, just the right words, that psychiatric care that, you know, when I was going through paramedic school 20 plus years ago, like that was a big thing, psychiatric care, right? For a, a psychological first aid, I think we called it. 
And so just talking to people, making sure they're reassured. And you may not have all the answers, but giving us some ideas and some notions just helps down the line with people like from Michelle and her and her folks. Well, letting you guys go and just kind of talk, answer pretty much every question I had, because I was going to ask, who do we report to? How do we report to you guys um, covered that? I was going to bring up the fact that, you know, we have like child abuse, elder abuse department agent contact them. Is there anything to say, hey, contact this department and help this person out? But it seems more like they have to disclose to you. So like you said, if you soften the target and then frequency, because if the person keeps coming in, you keep seeing them after a while, you know, you can kind of say, hey, you ready to, to talk or you got anything else to say? It's just kind of helping the person out. So you guys did an outstanding job of answering those questions for me. Yeah, and, and again, for your listeners out there, you know, if there's something they want to do or can do, look at your state, see if you have uh, laws on the books that require some type of educational platform for firefighters, paramedics, f- in recognizing human trafficking. Like Michelle and I do this uh, lecture series up here, and we've given it at a national level at some conferences. But you look at a map, like most states don't even require uh, human trafficking training for firefighters and paramedics, which is crazy because like I just said, we have warrantless entry. We go in people's homes all the time. But if you're a hairdresser, at least in Ohio and most places in the country, or a nail tech, you know, you have a cosmetology license, you are required to have some type of form of, of continued education. And it has to be hours allocated towards recognizing human trafficking because especially in the sex trafficking, you want your product, right, to look good so they yep. get their hair and their nails done. But for us, there's no train. So right now in Ohio, Michelle and I are working with the attorney general uh, trying to change that so that there's a, a requirement as part of our recycle cert, uh, period, both for fire and EMS, to have some awareness training in, in human trafficking. So any listeners out there are interested in the topic, you know, look at your own state. What are the rules and regulations currently on the books and what can you do to change them? Because really... I'm nobody, Michelle, we're just two people came up with this idea and we're uh, trying to champion this cause in Ohio. And we just get some other people to champion these causes in their states. Uh, Eventually we'll have not so much of a patchwork of rules and regulations, but a a unified command of being recognizing human trafficking. That is, that's an outstanding cause. Michelle, you was going to say something? I'm sorry. Yeah. So I think the other thing is, is not knowing your community and what resources you, you have probably more than you're aware of. And so one of the things that we did here in in Cuyahoga County is there's a a collaboration, the Collaborative to End Human Trafficking, where about 60 different organizations in Northeast Ohio all belong to. And they represent so many different points of entry that can help survivors of trafficking. So we have, you know, Case Western Reserve Law Clinic that helps Um, provide free legal aid to victims of trafficking. We have the Rape Crisis Center there. We have the Renee Jones Empowerment Center that does, you know, housing and um, uh, uh, other resources after you've you've left that lifestyle, you've been rescued or um, whatever your needs are with jobs and and housing and and, um, therapy. There is forensic nurses, there are uh, just the Salvation Army, so many different groups, right? So the point is that there's all these different groups. And when I first joined it, I realized there was no, I mean, there's law enforcement, there's prosecutors, but there's no EMS. And I thought, that's so interesting because they bring us our patients. How are they missing from this table? And um, 
So we worked with them and we have a local uh, law enforcement, the, the sheriff's department, a task force for human trafficking. So we work with them as well. And um, Tom and uh, one of the fire, oh, the fire chief from East Cleveland, Chief Caliga, uh, we worked together to create like a protocol or guideline on what you might see in the field are signs of human trafficking. And then if you do suspect that, what what do you do next? Where do, do you, you go? Yeah. Who do you call? Um, and so, um, you know, explain the different, where all the forensic nursing programs are in Northeast Ohio, what age groups they take, what phone numbers you can have, the task force phone number, what you should document, um, you know, suggest best practice suggestions for internal things from Tom and Chief Liga's point of view for, um, you know, what they want to see their departments doing. And so they created this, like, protocol, and um, we're going to distribute it to all the different departments, and they'll have it in their EMS truck to remind them of what they should do or where they should go if they see this. So if you're thinking, like, the next step in your community you know, maybe partnering with one of your local hospitals that have a forensic nursing program, seeing if there is a rape crisis center and do they have a, a response team? Um, is there something similar to the collaborative that you guys can join and be a part of so that, um, you know, I'm sure you have protocols. Do you have a human trafficking protocol in, in your fire department, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a collaborative or uh, you want to stick within the realm of public safety, uh, guaranteed, again, again, this is a, human trafficking is a huge priority with the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, every part of the country has a fusion center, and this is developed after 9-11 for processing information. So if you have information on potential human trafficking, get the number, it should be in every fire commander's cell phone, it should be in the cell phone of every truck, again, for not just for terrorism, but human trafficking or infrastructure uh, issues, um, um, uh, infrastructure tampering, um, but uh, that you can call that uh, fusion center that what they do is they take your information and then all they do is gather information from all different places, again, fusion center, and then they make sure that it gets to the right place. So if you have, uh, you're somewhere in the country, you're like, well, we don't have a collaborative or we don't have these types of resources. Who do I report it to? You can call your regional fusion center. Every part of the country has a, is covered by a regional fusion center. They want to hear from you. It's the see something, say something, not just in terrorism, but in human trafficking and drug trade and all these different things that we face as threats to our society. And you just call this phone number and you give your information, uh, say what agency you're from, and they'll make sure that it gets to the right place. So basically a, a giant uh, public safety and homeland security uh, operator system, a switchboard, right? Like from the 1940s. That's all they do. Okay. Um, you guys, you guys gave us uh, a ton of information and I really, really appreciate it. I'm going to look up those numbers and give that contact information, um, at the beginning of the show. And again, at the end of the show, um, for you two, do you have anywhere you would like anybody to contact you, um, on this subject or any subject relevant to this topic? Absolutely. You guys, um, Tom, we could share our PowerPoint, right? Uh, yeah, so we um, we can actually Seth, we could probably share a PowerPoint if you want to post that or host that somewhere on your on your server or your okay. site. Uh, people can look that. We'll give it a free link. People can go through it. Uh, can I get the statistics? Um, it's 
you know, all, when we develop this program, you know, it, it doesn't say the organizations that we represent or work for on there because we want people to be able to use this and take it and be able to use it as, as their own. Um, and for other types of subject matter on this, uh, they can contact me. I'm really big with social media, uh, especially on Twitter uh, for fire EMS and, and uh, uh, human trafficking issues. And uh, my Twitter handle is at one tall medic and it's spelled out O-N-E-T-A-L-L-M-E-D-I-C, one tall medic. Michelle, how about you? Um, you can reach out to me at M Reali, M R E A L I 32 at yahoo.com. And, um, you know, if anyone has questions about forensic nursing or, um, you know, the medical side, the clinical side of it, I'd be happy to set up phone calls or share my knowledge with people. And I got a lot of, I mean, people contact me over social media a lot, the, the, what's going through these courses or in person, um, you know, guys and gals from the field, from, they'll always bounce ideas off me like, well, I had this, you guys gave this talk, or I heard you give a talk, or I heard you recording a talk, or, you know, or heard of, and I had this case or that case, and they'll like throw ideas and things like, what do you think, what do you think, and we'll be happy to take those types of, of, uh, of calls and, and discuss it, because I like I said, go through my own career, like I, I it just, I had cases and now I look back in retrospect, I'm like, oh yeah, that was human trafficking. Um, you know, and again, it happens across all types of neighborhoods. I think I mentioned a story to you uh, about, you know, a, a large brothel that happened in a very, very expensive neighborhood, you know, filled with million dollar homes and it was a high-end brothel. And people just, they, they didn't see it. They, they couldn't tell that there were girls being prostituted for like big money um, you know, in, in this place. So it, it's not just a lower income. It's not just a, a black issue. It's not Hispanic. It's a global issue. It's, it's white people. It's poor people. It's middle-class. It's educated. It's uneducated drug addicts. Pick a person on the planet. They're affected it's, by this. It's possible. Right. It's yeah. totally possible. Yeah. Well, like I said, um, you guys bringing the subject matter to me and giving me the opportunity to showcase it and give it an episode is I, I appreciate a whole lot. Um, and like Michelle said, we could sit around and talk about this for a whole nother show. Just what's the difference between labor and sex trafficking. But for this one, we we will end here, but thank you so, so much for coming on. The thanks and, is all ours, man. Yeah. Thank you for giving us your platform. Absolutely. You guys, you have a great day. And after this, it'll be a little um, after monologue. But thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Dev. Bye. Bye. This has been a Fire and Iron Media production. You have something to say, people want to listen. How is that, Daddy? <laughs> <laughs>